That's the reading of God's word. What a powerful exchange between Jesus and this woman. Last week, we tackled the first couple of verses of John chapter 4, and we really took a step back, and we saw Jesus' overall strategy for mission. You cannot know who Jesus is in the Gospels unless you know him as a man on mission. And as we understood where Jesus was traveling from Judea to Samaria to, to Galilee, where he did his ministry, we understood that Jesus had a strategy. He planned, he plotted. He prayed about this. He he targeted specific areas. That's the overall strategy. Well, today we're talking about tactics because John gives us these little windows that the other gospel writers don't give us as much. We get to see Jesus speaking one-on-one with a person to, to share with them the good news of the gospel. We get to watch Jesus do it. And we get to think about what this looks like in our own life. And I, wa- I just want to highlight three things that Jesus is do- does regarding his evangelism in John chapter 4. He does it by being available, by being intentional, and by being joyful. These are three things that Jesus does and embodies as he speaks with this woman. And I want us to look at these three this morning. Well, we kind of already painted the scene here of Jesus showing up in Samaria. He had just been in Galilee, traveled to Judea. Now he's going back up to Samaria. And Jesus is hot. He's tired. He's worn out. He's been misunderstood by the Pharisees in Judea. And so he comes and shows up in this city, the Bible says, wearied. He's tired. He's worn out. And Jesus sends all 12 disciples into the town to get lunch. Now, it doesn't take 12 men to get lunch, although some of you wives are saying, you don't know my husband. Um, But Jesus is just getting rid of these guys. He just wants a moment of peace and quiet by the well by himself. It's noon. It's the heat of the day. Nobody comes and draws water at the well. Well, as he's sitting there getting a moment of peace, out comes this Samaritan woman. And like we said last week, if you believe in any ounce of humanity in Jesus, you can hear him under his breath say, darn it, I was here to rest. Are we really going to do this now, Father? Is this woman really coming out to draw draw water? And all of Jesus is plotting and planning, all of his support raising, all of his his thinking about getting back to Galilee and focusing on those 138 villages, all of that planning for his mission boils down to what he will do with this woman as she sits across from him. Will Will he engage her? And of course, as we learn, he does. He not only speaks with her, but verse 43 says he cars out two days to spend with her and with her friends to talk to her about the good news of the gospel. And that highlights the first point we need to wrestle with when it comes to evangelism. Jesus is available. Do not miss this incredibly crucial piece of our evangelism, availability, being available. We're going to talk about being intentional and being joyful, and sometimes we think about, man, moving the conversation from, hey, how about the USC game, to Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross from your sins. That's the hard part in evangelism. How do you, how do you be intentional in conversations? But I want to submit to you that one of the most difficult parts of evangelism is being there, is being available, is being attentive to the people who are around us. Because if you are not available, if you don't have time in your schedule, if you don't have money in your budget, if you don't have flexibility in your weeks, it is almost impossible for you to do evangelism. Everything in our culture rages against having margins in our life. Everything in our culture drives us to overschedule our weeks. I mean, we, we pour ourselves out from week to week, and we come to the end of our weeks exhausted and spent and no time to spare. 
Julie and I went to a marriage retreat last weekend. It was church planters who are married going to a marriage retreat, and church planting is just a bizarre subculture. If you have a chance this week to just befriend a church planter and take them out to lunch, do that, because these are weird people. Um, but one of the things that you do in a church planting conference is you kind of size each other up and say, where's this person serving? Who's coming to his church? What's doing that? Uh, and when you ask somebody how they're doing, which probably happens in your workplace, the only appropriate response is, I'm busy. I'm swamped. I'm killing it. I mean, I'm laying myself out. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Our culture celebrates that. We hear a pastor say that, and we say, man, that's right on. I like to hear that. We hear a worker say that, and we say, that's right on. I like to hear that. What if I had said at that conference, people ask me, man, what are you up to? And I just said, you know what? I'm I'm just available. I just have margins in my schedule. I have weekdays that I don't plan anything, and I'm just, I'm around. I'm available. How, how would you react to that in your heart? We, our culture just doesn't understand the language of availability, of free time, of free money. We, we, just, we, can't, we can't grasp that. This is hard work to do this. And so in personal family terms, what we do in our family is we deliberately, this is a discipline, we deliberately underschedule our weeks and underspend our budget. We lay out our week. We say, okay, this is what's possible. Now let's hack out a few of those things so that we have available weeks that can respond to, that we can respond to the Spirit's leading to connect with people or spend time with people. We under, underspend our money in the same way so that when a need arises, we don't say, hey, we've, we've earmarked every dollar that we have. We say, no, we've got field corners here. We've got money to give. Well, let me talk about it in terms of our, our corporate church culture. How do, we, how do we foster availability as a church? Because when you begin to venture into church culture, there are a hundred thousand things that we could begin as a church. Very good things. We could have more Bible studies, Sunday school classes, evening worship, midweek events, men's and women's prayer breakfasts, webs of one-on-one discipleship meetings. We can begin to churn out a bunch of good, good stuff. There's nothing wrong with anything I just read, and all of these things we want to weigh against the vision we feel like God's given us in our city, but can you begin to see that the more we do this, the less available we are? There's two problems with that. First of all, according to Colossians 1, man cannot live on content transfer alone. We cannot just create a bunch of teaching points And our people grow because of that, because knowing is in doing. And the more we teach, the more we have to provide avenues to do and get out and be. That's how teaching works. That's how transformation works. But the second reason is we want our people to be available. John and I earnestly believe Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 1 Peter 5, that as shepherds of the flock, we are responsible for the flock. And I earnestly believe that if we went down the path of overscheduling our people, God will say to us, what the heck were you thinking? I put these people in a neighborhood with neighbors who don't know Jesus. I put these people in workplaces and in schools around people who don't know Jesus. I gave them unique hobbies and interests and recreations, and they spent four or five times a week coming down to TAPS to do a church event. What were you thinking? These people need to be available in the spheres that they're in to do what God is calling them to do. So I hope you take a deep breath this morning and take great comfort in a pastor who will leave you the heck alone. That means something. That's a missional move. That's a discipline on the part of of your pastoral leadership to leave you alone to do what God is calling you to do. 
Let me give us a practical cool suggestion. If you're here and you're wondering, what does it look like to plug in and serve at CPC and be a part of this mission? I want to be a team player. I want to be a part of this church. Can I just give you three ways that you should think about connecting to CPC? The first of all is to come and invest in Sunday morning worship. All of us should plan to be here on Sunday morning in corporate worship. Hebrews says to us, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more as you see the day approaching, we should carve out Sunday morning as a time to be together in worship. But not only be here, it takes a lot of work to do Sunday morning worship, and so all of us should be thinking, what's a way that I can just help and serve? There's folks who come to set up chairs and tear down chairs, folks that do the sound, folks who do nursery, folks who do the coffee. These are practical ways to say, hey, if I'm coming and worshiping here, there should also be a time a month, two times a month, where I can serve what I'm doing here. Uh, Sherry McWilliams and Jonathan Bailey here. Are you guys here? I didn't even tell you I was going to do this. Could you stand up real quick? If you're wondering who to talk to about investing on Sunday morning, it's these two folks. Thanks, guys. Um, They're the folks that that you talk to and connect with and say, hey, I'm coming here on Sunday. How do I invest? The second thing is life groups. These are incredibly important pieces of discipleship where this is how we connect. This is our small group ministry. This is where we grow and foster relationships together. You'll meet once a month to fellowship and hang out. You'll meet twice a month to sit around God's word and pray together. And then I encourage you to add an extra time to that, just one time during the month to grab somebody in your life group and take them out for coffee, take them out for lunch, and, and learn more about them. So life groups is a very practical place to plug in. And if you're looking for a place to sign up, it's out there uh, at the welcome booth to think about life groups. Okay, the third piece is outreach. Now, some of you sitting here this morning are very active in your neighborhood. You're building relationships with your neighbor. Maybe you're already a part of another ministry. Maybe you're building relationships at your workplace and school. If that's you, then I encourage you not to join an outreach ministry at CPC. We want you to be free to do what you're doing. We encourage you and celebrate that. We want you to do that. But if you're like me and you find a couple of years into your Christian life that you starting, you're starting to surround yourself with Christians and you're looking for ways to branch out and build relationships with non-Christians, then I would really encourage you to find an outreach ministry to be a part of at CPC so that we can help create an avenue for you to reach, reach non-believers. Brian Wingate, if you're here, and Eddie Zhang, would you guys stand up? Um, I want you to talk to these two brothers. Elizabeth Jackson also heads up the outreach. But if you're looking for a way to connect, uh, Brian Wingate in the back, he deals with um, the strategy team for outreach. He's a guy to talk to. Eddie Zhang is a fearsome evangelist. He's a Chinese student. He reaches Chinese students. If you have a heart for internationals, he's a guy to talk to. Thanks, guys. This is just practical suggestions because I think when when we don't spell it out, All of us kind of feel generally guilty about our relationship with our church. Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? This is just guidelines for you. Just take this as a guideline, as a baseline. If you're pregnant or nursing, you need to cut that list in half. If you're a college student or a young single, you need to double that list and get involved. I mean, this, this is just a baseline to take with you and do. But the bottom line here, what we're talking about as we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is an incredibly busy ministry leader. Right? I mean, none can argue that Jesus is busy and has things on his plate, but he makes himself available to this woman and he engages her, and he's the one that initiates that. You're going to see that again and again in John's Gospel. Jesus, not his disciples, is the one who sees the woman at the well. In chapter 5, it's Jesus, not his disciples, who sees the invalid on the side of the pool. 
In chapter 8, it's Jesus, not his disciples, who notices the man born blind and engages. Jesus sees, he notices, he engages. In your hurry, do you notice the neighbor who's standing out in the yard when you pull up? Do you even see them before you hurry into your house? In your hurry, do you see that classmate that you recognize, or are you rushing to your next class? Some of us are worried about getting in a conversation about the gospel and defending the Trinity. How am I going to articulate this? I'm just worried about saying hi. I'm just worried about reaching out across my driveway and saying hello to the person there. I do my grocery shopping at Publix, and um, if you've been to Publix, it's an amazing place. All the baggers are trained to ask you if they can take your cart to to help you unload at your car. And when they've asked me that in the past, I've said, what do I look like, an elderly woman? I can take my own cart to, to... to my car, until I realized what they're really asking me is, sir, can I give you five minutes of my undivided attention? This is incredible. If you struggle with engaging with people, shop at Publix, and you will have five minutes every week to engage with somebody, walk to the car with them and say, tell me about yourself. When did you start working here? What's it like working for you? What do you want to do with your life? What's most important to you? Engage this person. I go into Publix, and I get a Coke and a chips, and I'm like, hey, can somebody help me take this to my car? You know. But seeing, engaging, that's learned behavior. That's something that we don't just generally do. That is learned behavior. And as we watch Jesus, as we pray through the life of Jesus, he will show us what it looks like to make ourselves available. All right, let's jump to number two, being intentional. Not only does Jesus start the ball rolling by engaging, but he's very intentional about where it leads. We could spend days on this conversation. There's so much here. There are so many allusions to history and to the Old Testament that both These parties bring out, but we don't have time to do that. Um, We're going to kind of oversimplify what Jesus is doing here. And he does what, what he always does and what all of us should do in every presentation of the gospel. He basically presents the twin motivations of of salvation and judgment. He presents that to this woman. He shows it. Salvation and judgment, offer and warning, promise and threat. There's joy in Jesus. There's slavery and sin. The Bible uses those as twin motivations. Sometimes it plays one harder than the other. Sometimes it plays the the other harder than the one. But the Bible always presents those two. We just read that in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus, when he's with this woman speaks the good gifts of salvation that are relevant to her needs. So he tells her in verse 10, there is living water that quenches your thirst. In verse 14, he says, there is eternal life. In verse 23, he says, you will have access to God in true worship as you never have had. Even in the face of her objections, even as she sidesteps him, he continues to entice her and entice her and share with her and show to her, but not without pointing out her sin. Jesus is very personal and very direct to draw out of this woman the fact that she is indeed a sinner and that when he makes these enticing offers of salvation, she needs it. How do we do that today? How do we make this relevant offer to folks today? Jesus is sitting at a a well. He makes a play on this well. It's brilliant. Do we stand by the Coke machine at our workplace and say, you know, don't spend your dollar there. I can make you um, fat and rot your teeth without using any of your money. That doesn't really, there's no equivalent like that, but I really want one of you to try that this week. Um, 
we share the good things of God that are relevant to the people that we talk to. The more we engage with somebody, the more we hear what is important and relevant to them, and we share the good things of God relevant to that. So you have a classmate who's stressed about school. You have a coworker who's struggling with his finances. You have a mom who you meet on the playground who is at her absolute wit's end with her kids. Share how Jesus meets us where we are. Now, there's a way to do that that's trite. There's a way to do that that somebody opens up to us and we just hit them with a little bit of Jesus. But there's a gentle way to do this. Maybe the most gentle way we could do this as somebody shares where they're struggling is just to say, you know what? Thank you so much for sharing that. I want to, I want to pray for you this week and, and ask you about this next week. That's a very non-controversial way to begin that. Maybe a next step would be, you know what, I, I understand what you're talking about when it comes to kids or when it comes to finances because that's something that I've wrestled with. And Jesus has made himself very personal to me in that. You haven't argued anything. You haven't debated anything. You haven't even challenged them. All you said is, you know what, Jesus meets me right where I am. And you've allowed that person to say, well, how did he do that? Uh, But the most engaging way could be to say, you know, can I share with you? We've talked about finances for a long time now. Can I share with you some ways that, that, that I've taken my struggle with money to Jesus and found healing and restoration in that? Or whatever you would say to your coworker. Uh, those are ways that people who feel a need inside of them begin to sense you have not shared John 3.16, you have not outlined the gospel, but you have enticed them by Jesus. They are more wanting of Jesus than they were before they talked to you. And isn't it remarkable that Jesus is as relevant to a harried mom as a fearful coworker, as a stressful student? That Jesus is as relevant an offering of his salvation to Nicodemus who's a Jewish male, well-educated and very obedient as he is relevant to this Samaritan woman, illiterate of public disrepute. Jesus is relevant to all of us in our needs. We can trust that when we are intentional and we share these things with other people, that his spirit is speaking through us to make himself relevant to the people that we talk to. So Jesus is available, he's intentional, and he's also joyful. Jesus is joyful in his evangelism. A lot of us will go out from here and we will do evangelism out of guilt. We'll be reluctant, but we'll do it, and we'll do it out of a sense of guilt because we don't do it and we should be doing it, and that's what we need to do as Christians. You can spot guilt in your evangelism when you beat yourself up for not doing it and when you feel dirty doing it. You feel yourself cramming a conversation in where it doesn't belong and being inauthentic in a place where you don't feel like you're being relevant. That's how you spot guilt in your evangelism, or that's what people tell me who struggle with this kind of thing. But this is all over me. I mean, I have this sense that I I need to be doing this, and it puts me in very awkward situations where I've, I've come crashing in with something that I feel burdened to share in a place that's totally irrelevant and shouldn't be done. Well, others of us are going to do this out of duty. We're going to do this out of a sense of duty. And you can spot duty in your evangelism when you swell with self-righteousness when you've done it. Or when you are quick to point out to other people the ways you've suffered for doing evangelism. That's a person who's doing evangelism out of duty. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves that the person that we're talking to can't read both of those things like an open book, see that they are being made a project for our own inadequacy as we share the gospel with them. They can spot that. 
all of us are desperate to get reoriented around Jesus, to see that there is joy all over this exchange with this woman. For the woman's part, she is so excited in verse 28 that she leaves her jar and runs to tell other people about Jesus. Man, I love that symbolism. She came with a jar to get water from the well. She leaves running with living water from Jesus of which she has no use for her jar anymore. Isn't that remarkable? She's thrilled. She's excited. She's been made the object of available, intentional, joyful evangelism, and she is thrilled about that. Her adulterous sin has been exposed. Her false hope in religion has been challenged. The redundancy of her well-drawing life has been pointed out, all to show her her need for Jesus. And she doesn't feel like somebody's project. She doesn't feel used. She is delighted. I love the testimony that she gives and the reaction to her testimony. She says in verse 29 to her, her town, Come, see a man who told me something, all that I've ever done. Now imagine if someone was standing out on the street and you said, dude, there's a guy outside who will tell you your entire thought life. I'd be like, man, I do not need that right now. I am headed in the opposite direction. That's not what I want. But you see this whole town is ripe and ready to hear this kind of Jesus who can tell me anything I've ever done. And they come ready to hear it. Well, for Jesus' part in verse 31, he is so happy about what just happened that he doesn't even need lunch that his disciples have brought to him, that sharing the gospel with this woman is like a full belly and a spring in his step. He is right in step with God's will, and, and he feels that resonate with his soul. He tells his disciples when, when the sower and the reaper get together, they rejoice, which is an amazing thing. We can see the reaper rejoicing. That's Jesus right now. He's reaping a, a converted soul But he's saying, you know what, the sower who has that conversation that doesn't go well, that upsets his friend, that person gets together with the sower and they rejoice. There is joy in our evangelism. And you see it again, by the way, that Jesus just lingers in this town. He's eager to get back to Galilee. He's eager to reach that area, but he can't but help himself linger in this town and watch people to come to faith in him. Being available, intentional, joyful in our evangelism is not something we do naturally. It is learned behavior. It comes by walking with Jesus. May you do this more and more in you and in I and in this church. Let's pray together.